And now, it's time for the Dead by Rap Pod with your host, Damone Carter, David Ma, and Nate LeBlanc. Dad Bod Rap Pod, episode 134. For all of our new friends who might be joining us for the first time, my name is Damone Carter, a.k.a. Dim One. I am one third of the Dad Bod Triumvirate. I am the rapper. Um, If you've never heard of me, that's okay. I've never heard of you either. Um, I am joined on this podcast weekly by the man, the myth, the braised meats legend, Nate LeBlanc. How's it going? Hey, what's up, man? Uh, Quite quite the intro there. Hello, world. Uh, My name is Nate LeBlanc. I'm a record collector and hip-hop fanatic um, since a young age and um, the producer for the show. Yes, sir. And also the third member of the group is a man whose work you've probably seen in all types of publications dealing with music journalism. Uh, He is David Ma. How's it going, Dave? Yo, what's up, Damone? What's up, Nate? What's up, everybody? Uh, Really good to be here. Uh, Stoked on our new beginning with uh, Starburns. Shout out to Mike Eagle for um, letting us be draft picks. And uh, yeah, Dave here, um, longtime music journalist, um, always down to talk about music. Um, you know, my approach is that I want to examine music that's um, from a perspective that's informed by the past, and we do it every week with uh, some shit talking thrown in as well. Yep, that's our steez, man. Dad bod rap pod, three guys of a certain age uh, arguing about rap music, very, to put it in a nutshell. And we are newest members of Stony Island Podcast. Shout out to Open Mike Eagle for giving us the opportunity. I like to think of us as like a Draymond Green kind of draft pick, a little pudgy. (laughs) They're not sure where to put us. We're a tweener. It's kind of comedy. It's kind of a journalistic breakdown of hip hop. It's kind of a lot of different things. Uh, But we're here. We're excited about it. Shout out to Don Newkirk, man. We were fortunate enough to have uh, Don Newkirk do an intro for us. Uh, Nate, when you heard Don in- Duke, when you heard Don Newkirk say your name, uh, how did that feel, man? It's just a, a rap fan and somebody who came up listening to De La and and hearing Gas Face and all those things. Uh, straight up goosebumps, dude. Like, kind of couldn't believe it was happening. Um, it's just like we've gotten to talk to some amazing people over the last couple of years and the show is kind of taking us into these interesting spaces where we're, we're not quite just fans anymore. We're certainly not insiders by any means. We live in San Jose, California. We like, you know, we, we have a little bit of access, but not as much as you might think we, uh, and this is one of the cooler things that has happened to us um, in, in our little time here. I think um, we're really happy to have this new intro and just, his voice has graced so many projects that meant so much to me in my life. To have him say my name, I'm kind of like speechless. It's just like, I, I just feel very lucky to be in this position. And uh, I'm just super stoked the way it came out. And I just have to thank Dave for putting that together. Uh, Dave is our talent booker and uh, the person who uh, helps us reach out to a lot of the people that you'll hear on the program. And I just say, you knocked it out of the park on this one, man. I couldn't imagine a more perfect intro for the show and kind of our ethos. Dude, 100%. Thank you, man. Uh, very happy to do it. I mean, this is, this is a new 
Newkirk from, you know, um, this is Prince Paul's frequent collaborator. This is a Newkirk from Def Jam, Newkirk from Three Feet High and Rising, Newkirk from Gas Face. And um, shout out to Albert Jenkins as well. If you heard Newkirk, then you heard him introduce us over our theme music. Uh, it's a track called Pyramids by our friend DJ Albert Jenkins. Shout out to him. And yeah, man, we're, we're just really excited for this uh, new chapter. Demone? Yeah, man. Uh, the Stony Island Opportunity meets us at a good time. We've done 133 episodes, essentially dropping every Thursday at noon for the better part of two years. Nate is still married somehow. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. We've been producing this show so consistently. Um, and yeah, we're, we're here feeling brand new, acting brand new. We have new artwork. Shout out to Arthur Bonnet. Uh, mm -hmm. Hope I'm saying the name right. Who did our new artwork in kind of the, the Stony Island aesthetic where Dave gets a fuller mustache. I saw what happened there. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah, and so basically the format of this show is we do a little banter. We talk about kind of the, the latest and greatest in, in rap and kind of in society in general. Um, and then we typically will have an interview um, with somebody who's just incredible from Dave's Drolodex. This episode in particular is um, one of the best ones we've done, uh, not only because of it's an incredible name to drop, but someone who is sort of reclusive and doesn't actually do a lot of press. Um, but again, through Dave's connections, we were fortunate enough to talk to DJ Shadow, um, just groundbreaking artist, um, person who I would say reinvented uh, hip hop instrumentalism. Um, I think when I think of the way that hip hop instrumentals are used nowadays, we right. couldn't have got here without DJ Shadow. So we had the great fortune of talking to him. Nate, you've kind of met Shadow here and there a couple times. Um, how was it for you? Because I, I would say, you know, you're one of the bigger fans of his work and have this kind of encyclopedic knowledge of all the stuff that he's done. Um, how, how did that feel just to be able to talk to him and, and vibe out in this yeah, kind of space? Yeah, um, it, it, it was awesome. And um, just from reading Dave's work and following his career really closely, I know he's known as a person who's really good to interview. Like he, he kind of gives you, from a journalistic standpoint, he's really good at giving you what you want, like, like kind of taking the question into account and giving you a really thoughtful answer to it. And I, I think, as you guys will hear that reputation is well deserved. But as you, as you mentioned before, like, yeah, I've just, I've just been a fan of his for so long. I think I've, I've been a pretty staunch fan of his since about 1996 when introducing came out. And then I started looking backwards toward his early, like kind of like DJ shadow and the groove robbers kind of stuff, his cut and paste era, his version of lesson four, which we all know cut chemist also has a version of lesson four and that's how they became friends and his production work for um, Asia born at the time and the whole soul sides click. And that, that music's really important to me. He produced probably the most impactful song of my life, which is Latirics by Latirics from the album Latirics, um, <laughs> where they uh, infamously both rap at the same time. And that just exploded yep. my brain into a million little fragments back in the day. And so, yeah, I've met him a couple times. Um, at some like shows and in stores and I bought a t-shirt and you know it's like I was just a fan I was just a geeking out and he's always been really humble really cool um and it's just someone whose music is really important to me so it's super rad to talk to them um Dave your your take on it has been slightly different because you guys have like done some like serious journalism together can you tell the yeah. people a little bit about how that all came to be 
Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I was very fortunate to be able to uh, go to DJ Shadow's house um, mm. and uh, sit in his home studio and, and just pick his brain for this very extensive um, Wax Poetics cover story. I think it was issue 66. It was one of their last print issues. And, you know, um, just rolling up to his house, um, his studio is very modest, but there's just ephemera overflowing everywhere. And so immediately you can tell that he is a fan of music. I mean, uh, on top of being a participant, he is music's biggest fan. And, and to your point earlier, Nate, I mean, he's so encyclopedic when it comes to music and um, just to sit there and, and to, to pick the brain of this guy whose work has been described as genre defining, uh, Coltrane-esque even. And when you talk to him, like you said earlier, Nate, I mean, the humility is, is astounding. And I'm sitting here just listening to, you know, to him break everything down into granular detail about mm -hmm. every little sample that he's, that he's spoken about. And you're just listening and it's just so expansive. Um, his, his understanding of music, he's a sample maestro, but on top of that, he's a fan of music. And on top of that, he's just the most humble guy. So, I mean, it's, it's a refreshing experience. It's a big honor. And uh, just to have him on the show, man, I mean, uh, this, is, this is what we're here for. This is what we do. Damone, what, what Absolutely. Do uh, yeah, I was, my first time kind of, you know, interacting with DJ Shadow, and I was in, impressed with just how cool and humble he is and how he understands his music in context of the greater culture. Mm -hmm. I think we've talked to a bunch of rappers, a bunch of different producers, and it's always interesting to see from, from kind of an ego um, career perspective how artists view their own work. And I felt that his take on where he sits in the culture is very kind of refreshing and interesting. Um, it actually, after we did this interview, which happened a couple weeks ago, it made me kind of go back and listen to some of his other stuff um, and with, with kind of a new, um, with new ears, because mm -hmm. I, I was able to, to understand some of the ethos that went into making um, these incredible projects. And so we were really fortunate to have him join us in our Zoom. For those of you who are just joining us for the first time, this is like, this is what we do. We have a little bit of, of, of banter and then we end up talking to somebody, you know, typically amazing, uh, old and new. Um, we talk to, you know, some of the, the titans of, of hip hop and we also talk to some of the newer voices in hip hop. Mm -hmm. um, so for our first podcast on Stony Island, we wanted to come out with a bang with somebody that we know everybody uh, knows and loves their work. Um, and so, you know, let's get into it. Why don't we? This is our interview with the incredible DJ Shadow, Dad by Rap Pod. Dad Bod Rap Pod. We are back with another dope interview. Really excited about this week's guest. Uh, you may know um, some of his work. And if you don't, you're going to get a real great introduction to um, one, of, one of our favorite producers and, and somebody who's made a, a real impact in hip hop. Generally, we want to welcome to the program DJ Shadow. How's it going? 
I'm good. I'm good. I'm hot. It's hot up yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Triple triple digits uh, around the bay today, but we're we're happy you can make time to uh to chat with us. You are from kind of the Sacramento area, right? Like Davis ish. Yep, I was born in San Jose though. Um, born hey. in San Jose. <laughs> and I mean, it doesn't even matter. Like you look on Wikipedia, I think it says I was born in Hayward. Um, nice. The year is wrong. Like, I don't even care about that stuff anymore. Like, I'm just embracing the anonymity. You know what I mean? There it is. We, we, we will claim you, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was born in San Jose and, uh, uh, let's see, moved to the Napa era, area when I was like four. And then we settled in Davis, California uh, when I was five. Okay. And that's kind of... Your, your formative years were spent there where, where many hip hop dreams are born. Uh, of course. How, <laughs> how was it? Like, how, how did you first start to formulate the idea that this would be your life career and trajectory kind of coming from a, a non-traditional uh, hip hop market, let's say? I mean, as with most people, it happened in stages. I mean, pivotal stages for me would be hearing the message on KFRC in 1982. I had been a, a fan of groups like Cool and the, you know, I was like an R&B guy. I liked Lakeside and Gap Band and Cool and the Gang and the other R&B groups that were big in the early 80s, Rick James, people like that. Um, but I, you know, my access to music was limited to the radio. So, you know, whatever you heard, whatever was being played, that's what I thought there was out there. I didn't know, you know, there was underground music or anything like that because I was eight years old. And then, um, yeah, so I was 10 when I heard the message. And from then on, it became, you know, what is this music? Where is it? Why, why is it not played in Sacramento? Why is it only played in the Bay Area? Um, where can I hear it? You know, and KFRC was an AM station, so it carried to Davis. Um, but my dad, my parents separated, and my dad still lived in San Jose. He still does. And so when I would go back to the Bay to visit him every other weekend, I asked him one time in 1984, I was like, do you know what rap music is? He said, I think so. I said, where can I hear it? Is there a station that plays it? He said, try KSOL. Um, so I literally, it was like a Saturday evening. I turned on KSOL and immediately heard rap. You know what I mean? They were playing and I popped in a cassette and started recording mixes that very evening and heard stuff like, um, Art and Noise for the first time. Um, what was I hearing? I was hearing, I mean, trying to remember that early mix, but they were playing like Beats and Rhymes by UTFO. I was like, okay, this is it. I found it, I found a home, I found a place where I can regularly interface with music. And, and then of course, you know, movies like Beat Street and Breaking came out. So hip hop became at a, at a certain point, like a, a youth fad in 1984, 1985. Um, but for me, it was always bigger than that. And that's the real struggle I always had like in school growing up in Davis, people would be like, oh, that's tired. What, you're still listening to rap? That's, you know, rap is over. It's about skate culture now, where it's about, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever kids were into. And kids at that time were very uh, music conscious, very um, pop culture conscious. So to not be into something that was supposed to be 
happening and to be into something that was supposed to be over was was weird and awkward. Okay, right on, right on. Hey, um, Josh, I'd like to start off just a little bit at the beginning with um, Bigger Than Life Productions. If you wouldn't mind sort of giving us a little background on that, as well as, you know, that tape, um, Hip Hop Construction from the Ground Up, if you wouldn't mind letting people know a little bit about that history and sort of the um, exposure and opportunities that that led into. Sure, sure. So, I mean, you know, 86, 87, 88, started developing a reputation, started, uh, the first time I ever DJed was on the campus at UC Davis. I'm sorry, the first time I ever DJed in front of people, scratched in front of people, was uh, uh, actually uh, at UC Davis, they did a Black Family Day. So that was like 87. Paris, the, the rapper from the Bay Area, Paris, was also going to UC Davis at that time. And I was just barely in high school. I was a, a sophomore in high school at that time. So I started mixing with um, the UC Davis crowd. Um, Oris Washington was the first person to have a regular rap show at KDVS, the college radio station there. And Paris had heard that, you know, I, I was finding samples and loops and beats and this and that. So uh, that was really kind of like, okay, you know, Paris put out his first underground 12 inch. It was incredible. And that was really the first time that somebody I knew did something where I was like, wow, this, this, this is legit. This could really, you know, be something. Um, and from that reputation and from hanging with Oris in Paris, um, there was a guy named Chris Rivers um, and he had a DJ, I think DJ Macaroni. And I went to his house in Oakland and he was the first person I ever met that had ultimate breaks and beats. Um, before that, I had never heard of ultimate breaks and beats. I mean, if you were buying records in the Bay area, like star records, um, at Capitol and McKee, that was my spot out in San Jose. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, you just didn't see ultimate breaks and beats. It didn't make it uh, to the Bay, at least as far as I knew. And he had family connections in, uh, on the East Coast. So he was like one of those dudes that would go visit family and bring back the latest volumes of Ultimate Breaks and Beats. So they were doing a little thing in Chris Rivers' um, New Paris, and Paris was actually involved with one of the early tapes, I think mixed a couple of the, of the tracks. So it was really just kind of a, a network of people going to school at UC Davis and um, who, who were into rap and loved rap. And that was the crew at that time, Bigger Than Life Productions. And um, there was an MC named Swee D. And he, you know, we all thought he sounded like Rakim, which if you sounded like Rakim in 89, you were, you were gonna be large. And we all thought he was large. And um, it was just kind of right before the big initial breakout of the Bay with, you know, Digital Underground and, um, Dell and all the other groups that got signed like circa 1990 it was just prior to that so everybody was still finding their way as far as like what a bass sound is um, obviously you had too short and everything prior to that but and then of course hammer was huge in 89 88 89 and to be honest a lot of the bigger than life productions was, was stuff was a little bit on that tip mm. but I didn't do the production for them um, I did scratching on a couple of tracks and, you know, we talked about what we were going to do in this and that, but then I graduated high school 
at the same time, Paris graduated uh, UC Davis. And so people started kind of drifting apart. And Chris Rivers, I think he ended up moving up to the Northwest or something. I haven't talked to him in years. Okay, right on, man, right on. Um, Nate? Yeah, I wanted to advance the timeline up a little bit um, and talk about the beginnings of Soul Sides and your time at UC Davis. And um, I don't know if you saw, but I think it was Jasbo posted an incredible trove of point and shoot pictures on Twitter a couple mm -hmm. of weeks ago. And I, I was a huge fan of um, you guys and Latirix, especially. I always say Latirix changed my life. Like it just opened a lot of doors for me. And so I'm just a huge admirer of that time and that sound. And it just struck me seeing those pictures, how young you guys were. Um, right. did, did you feel like you knew what you were doing? And did you feel like you're, I think a lot of people think their friends are good at rapping or producing, but did you know that you were building with world-class talent at that time? Um, on a certain level, yeah, but I mean, it's not like we ever, I, I mean, we, part of our whole ethos was like to minimize the ego. So it's not like we really walked around thinking we were going to blow up or anything like that. We just knew that we had really, um, kind of hardcore opinions about what we thought was dope and what we thought was weak and, and, and uh, we just have a ravenous appetite. I think the big record for us was Freestyle Fellowship, um, To Whom It May Concern, the first underground uh, you know, record that they put out before they got signed. And I think for all MCs on the West Coast at that time, that was really the bellwether and, and, and something that like, okay, there's something happening in California and it's bigger than that kind of electro sound or the, or, you know, what would end up being G-Funk later and stuff like that. Like there was something lyrical and artistic and um, um, just different, you know, and, and we, I think all of the MCs within Quantum and uh, Soul Sides at that time really seized on that. And we, of course, looked up to groups like Souls and, um, you know, we all liked Alcoholics and, and I'm trying to think of other West Coast groups at that time. I liked, I loved WC and the Mad Circle, that kind of stuff. And um, so we just kind of liked stuff that was hardcore and different and a little bit unusual. But we, you know, like I, of course, having grown up in Davis and then I went to UC Davis starting in 1990, and I happened to be at Tower Records in SAC and saw this playlist that DJ Zen had posted, uh, Jeff Chang, DJ Zen. And I had no idea that there was a new dude with a rap show at KDVS because Oris, my mentor, had graduated as well in 1990. So I was like, okay, damn, let me go down there. And I used to ride my bike to KDVS and play my little mixes on cassette. So I felt like, oh, this is this is my radio station. You know what I mean? Like, and then when I met uh, uh, Tom Lyrics Born and and X Chief XL, they had already connected, and they were from well, I mean, you know, the, I, they made their way to each other. They were both from different places. I grew up in Davis, so I felt local, and I remember the first time I kind of met him. We just we did not really hit it off at all and it was really dj zen that kind of was like hey you guys are all trying to do the same thing you should unite and pull your talents and pull your resources and uh and and that's what we started to do i mean i 
I'm sure they felt like they had their own thing and they knew what time it was and they knew what, what, what was up. And I felt the same way because I was already, you know, I had played mixes on KSOL and um, I had already gotten started on Hollywood basic um, and put out a few things with them. So, and I had uh, been in the source and all that kind of stuff. So I felt like, Oh, you know, I, I've got something going on. They felt like they had something going on and we didn't feel like we needed each other, but it was really Zen that brought us together. That's dope. Uh, so you you help kind of form this collective that puts out amazing rap music. Um, and then you kind of reinvent instrumental hip hop uh, in 1996 with, with introducing. Um, I'm really curious to know what was the the thought that took you there from I'm doing this amazing stuff with Soulslides Quantum to I'm going to put out this kind of sample filled instrumental thing um and that's question number one number two did you know it was going to be as big as it ended up being I mean um no I mean uh, it's I still don't know what it is or, or, or how big it was or how big it wasn't. It was just, um, just a point A to point B to point C to point D. And, and like, I was inspired by people like Mantronic and, and Steinsky and other people that had put out instrumental hip hop, um, prior to me. And, uh, so really it was just kind of, me searching for something I didn't want my I had always felt like if I'm going to make a, a contribution to hip hop I have to be myself because okay yeah you start out you imitate your heroes I, I'm trying to scratch like Jazzy Jeff I'm trying to um, make beats like Premiere or whatever whoever I was looking up to and I think that's how everybody starts is by imitating their heroes but at a certain point um, once you put in that work and you put in those hours, I think then it becomes on you to provide an alternative to people. And, and what is that going to sound like? Well, for me, um, I don't know. I was just trying to make something that, that, that moved myself, of course, initially. Um, but along the way, just as I mentioned, important mentors like Oris Washington and, and Paris and Chris Rivers, then came people like Dave Funk and Klein at, at at the source and Hollywood basic and Maddie C at the source and stretch Armstrong from New York and red alert in New York and other people that, you know, I would send my tapes to and they'd be like, Oh shit. Okay. This is, this is tight or funk master flex when he was doing A&R at profile or, you know, labels like wild pitch and Tommy boy, they all were like, we like this tape, keep doing it. And then along the way though, as hip hop, and rap music became more commercial like in 91 92 93 then what started happening is those same labels would be like this stuff's a little too weird you need to loop up something more familiar you know you mm. need to do like why don't you take that loop that so-and-so just used and make like flip it differently and make your own track and i'd kind of be like because that's not what i want to do <laughs> <laughs> and and it would get really like kind of depressing at certain times because Dave Klein, Dave Funk and Klein, he, his health started to decline. He had, uh, he unfortunately passed away in the mid nineties and he was really the person that was like, yeah, you're different. I like you, you're different. And once his health started to decline and, and Hollywood basic as a label 
started to decline as a result. For a little minute, for a hot minute, I didn't really have an outlet. And it really wasn't until James Lavelle from a British record company called Moax reached out and called me. He got my number from Albia Tommy Boy and just said, hey, I, you did this record on Hollywood Basic, this weird instrumental. That's what I want my label to be. I want you to make something for me. So suddenly I had an outlet again and I had somebody that again was saying like, that weird stuff, do the weird stuff, go as far out as you want with it. Um, and I think anybody who's trying to do something creative, you need somebody to believe in what you're doing. Right on, right on. You know, I just want to further that chronology just a little bit. Um, can you, I mean, you mentioned James Lavelle. Can you touch a little bit on science fiction and how that sits with you now? And also um, part two of the question is, can you talk a little bit about DJ Crush and your relationship with them and sort of how you guys connected? Sure, I mean, I can mention Crush first. Um, I think I met Crush in 94. Um, in 93, James Lavelle started bringing me out to, to England and Europe and doing little spot DJ dates and whatnot. And in 94, I found myself out there with Crush and with this group called RPM. I think they were part of that tour. Um, and Crush was one of those people that I immediately just kind of vibed with because um, I felt like we both had a similar passion for hip hop because we both came from unusual places. Um, Crush obviously from Japan. And I think we both had a similar kind of looking through this window and how do we how do we find out information because of course back then it may sound obvious but to a lot of younger people it's not i mean there was no internet you had to right and and there wasn't even a magazine until 1990 really so in the 80s if you wanted to know anything about hip-hop it was like this constant search oh have you read this book by david toop okay yeah you got to get that um have you read have you did you catch this little interview with so-and-so on Phil Donahue or like, you know what I mean? I remember School E.D. was on the Morton Downey Jr. show one time. Wow. So you were just like, hip hop, where, like, these people are my heroes. How come I can't see them? How come I can't read about them? How come Rolling Stone and Spin aren't covering it? You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I think with him, it was a similar thing living in Japan. You know, I think he went to the, like, the Wild Style tour with The Clash and Futura and, the Rocksteady crew and all that. So that was his introduction. And so we, we had a very similar opinion, I think about music and, um, uh, and what was dope and what wasn't. And um, yeah, we, we saw a lot of each other through the nineties. I've only seen him really sporadically in the last 20 years, but every time I see him, it's, it's, you know, it's like, it's all love. Um, and then as far as uncle man, uh i mean it's a whole that's a whole probably five hour interview but I'm, I'm 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 definitely still happy with it i mean i i feel pretty lucky in the sense that while i know not everybody has loved everything i've done i personally have never released anything that i wasn't cool with or like you know through this phase or that phase or trying this thing or doing that thing i i feel i'm at peace definitely with everything i've ever done right on. um so i'm not sure if that answers your question but 
but yeah, I still like it. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. We'll get that five hour interview scheduled for maybe a less hot day. Uh, So I would like to advance us up one step further. And I want to talk to you about the private press, but what I really want to do is talk to you about monosyllabic, the the track itself. And I'm going to posit what I think that track is about. And I love you if you could tell me if is that true or not? And then I just kind of want to see if, again, we, we kind of want to see, like, with the benefit of hindsight, are you, like, how you're feeling about these things now? So, in, I believe that the, with that track, you wanted to take a, a short couple of bar segment and then flip it as many ways as possible, right? Like, to right. use filters, use different time signatures, use different programming methodology, and to right. take, it, take it as far out as humanly possible, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I guess my question for you in 2020 is, did it work? Like, uh, did you get the respect of your peers? Like, did people take it the right way? Like, um, I, I, to me, I just see it as like such a flex and it was so impressive to me when it dropped. I guess, how do you feel about it now? Oh, I mean, I, I yeah, it's, I mean, to me, it's one of a long list of things that I feel like I was super proud of and when I make music, I'm making it for my most um, critical friends and and fans. And I'm always trying to to do stuff that'll make, like I want all my, the people that, that, that I admire to be like, yo, when you did that, that was, that was incredible. But I honestly, that never happens. <laughs> so, Fair enough. so, I mean, I, I, you know, what's really funny is literally like three days ago, um, because one thing that COVID has allowed is I have all this time to organize stuff that I've just been piling up for 30 years of being on tour. Right. And just uh, like pull out a box and it's like, oh shit, there's, there's that stuff. Oh, this, I put this away 20 years ago and here it is. Okay. And one of the things I was just reading a few days ago was, um, the press or I should say the the mailing list response for the white label promo that we did of that track in the UK. Mm. So in other words, they did like, I don't know, 300 white label promos of monosyllabic and sent it out to uh, movers and shakers in the industry, DJs, whatever. And then they were supposed to send like a couple of sentences and whether they were going to spin it. And that feedback was pretty funny. (laughs) There was there was one said uh, one dude that said um, shadow's gone all square pusher, which <laughs> square pusher was a producer doing stuff yeah. like that at that time. For sure. And then uh, another one was like, you know, and some people were like, "This is crazy, definitely unexpected." And that's what I'm always trying to kind of do is uh, what's not really expected, and and because that I mean, you know, that that's what. I think at my heart, I'm always trying to kind of shake things up a little bit because I, mm-hmm. all the artists that I really, really, really admire from, you know, De La to Public Enemy to BC Boys or whoever, I mean, that's what they always did. It was like, you think we're going to go right, but we go left. You think we're going to go left, but we go right. Yep. And 
I just think, yeah, I mean, those are groups that seem to do really well at that. I think I, in contrast, um, just as often as I succeed, I, I alienate or I frustrate. Um, which, which is a great segue to the, the outsider record mm -hmm. um, that you did kind of circa, circa 06, right. where um, you had embraced elements of the hyphy movement that was going on. And I right. do remember that there was a visual, visceral kind of backlash behind that. Um, oh, yeah. can, can you tell us a little bit about like uh, how you decided to, to go on that detour of that particular way of going against the grain and then your, your reaction to people uh, feeling a certain way about that record? Yeah, well, honestly, um, and I guess this speaks to what I said earlier about being at peace with stuff. I think one of the reasons I can say that is that in every case that I've ever been inspired by something, the music made its way to me. Um, what had happened was starting in 2003, after I did the private press, um, and I'm speaking to you from the room that I made that record, um, I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't be in this room and make another record because the private press was so labor intensive and I spent so much time making it and so many long hours and I didn't have kids then. So I really just, I would be in here for 12, 16 hours at a time. Um, and so after the private press, I was like, I gotta just be somewhere else. So I basically set up a studio in the mission in San Francisco. And what I quickly learned is like, damn, it literally takes me an hour <laughs> each way to drive to and from work, even though as the crow flies, it's like 10 miles. Um, but yeah, so that was unexpected. And what I found myself doing is, you know, quickly running out of tapes to play or CDRs to play. And so I was like, well, let me just listen to the radio. And hmm. when I turned on the radio, I heard tracks like um, It's a Slumper by Turf, by, uh, was that 40, right? E40 with Turf, Turf Talk. Talk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Rick Rock produced that. And then I was hearing, you know, basically like uh, I'm Cool by, uh, or is it It's Cool by Keek? Uh, cool. Cool. You cool? The one that uses the Pink Panther. Yeah. Um, which of course was Rick Rock again. So I just started kind of being like, whoa, this, this is ill. This isn't the same mob sound, you know, that, yes. that like, you know, from Selly Cell to to little Bruce, to, you know, all that classic stuff, which was great. But at a certain point I was like, okay, I get it. I get the mob sound. And, and I just kind of tuned out for a while. Now I was hearing the Bay come with something a little bit different. The energy was different. The tempo was faster. And by the time records like, um, uh, man, like, um, uh, uh, the dummy and stuff like that. And, and the early kind of hyphy stuff started coming out. I was like, this is incredible. It brought, it had an energy that reminded me of a certain time. Mm -hmm. And um, so I just like the Bay, you know, like people used to say back then the Bay, it felt like the Bay was back and it felt like there was a movement happening. And I went to cameo summer jam by myself in 2005 and that was like one of the most memorable concerts I've ever been to. It was just as memorable as 
uh, Def Jam 88 at Oakland Coliseum or any of the other early hip hop shows that I went to. Um, the energy was incredible. Kids just, you know, 10,000 kids all doing these crazy dances and dressing a certain way. And um, everybody that came out and like the DJ would drop, drop a Mac Dre track and the whole crowd would be singing it. And it just was, it really felt like a time. And it was something I just wanted to contribute to full stop. I just want like, okay, I'm feeling this. I feel like I get it. I feel like as a producer, I can contribute. And that's all it was about. And that's all I wanted to do. In terms of the feedback or the criticism or, or whatever, I'm sure you can imagine for me, it's a little bit hard to swallow that like some dude in the UK who knows nothing about Bay Area music is like, what is this shit? You know what I mean? And fair enough if you're from the Bay and you weren't feeling it or whatever, but 99 times out of 100, if you did the forensics on who was chirping or whatever, it was always somebody from some other part of the world. And it's like, okay, fair enough. You don't like it, but don't tell me it's not successful music for what it's trying to do. Like, you know, Three Freaks, I grew up, I always wanted to hear my stuff on the radio, never, ever hear my stuff on the radio. Then all of a sudden, Three Freaks is on the radio all the time, and I'm driving through Vallejo and seeing kids sing the hook as they're walking across the crosswalk. And there's no way you can tell me, even at age whatever I was, 37 or whatever I was at the time, that that won't affect you or give you some kind of thrill. It definitely gave me a thrill, and it, and it, felt, it felt good to contribute. Oh, so well, you know, Josh, I want to just quickly revert back to private press because um, the last time we spoke for uh, Wax Poetics, I didn't have a chance to really dive into uh, Six Days. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, coming across the uh, Colonel Bagshot sample, as well as just, um, I think, moving forward um, with the music video with Wong Kar Wai and everything. Can you um, expand a little bit on that for us? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I can still vividly remember. Um, well, what's interesting, I guess, or you might find interesting is that the music for Six Days was originally intended for The Gift of Gab. Um, he and I were going to do an EP. Wow. Um, and that track really goes back to like the mid 90s. Oh, wow. Yeah. And... So he and I had this EP on deck. It was going to be crazy. But at the same time, I felt a little funny about, um, I didn't want X to feel like I was kind of just jumping in and, and you know, trying to blow Gab up before they really had their, t their time to, to incubate and build their own vibe. And it wasn't something that was spoken about, but it was just something I was really sensitive to. And I didn't want to I didn't, I don't know. I just sort of felt like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to let them do their thing. I don't want to be perceived as kind of just, you know, running in and, and trying to, to make something happen for myself. Mm. Um, so we never ended up doing that, but I remember really loving all the music from that EP, but the drums weren't right. And 
working on the private press like 2000 at some point i remember what i would do is i would just run loops music loops uh through my speakers and then on my turntables i would just try to put things in pitch i would just drop a record on and go okay maybe this saxophone solo will work or whatever it is and then using the pitch slider i would try to get it in tune mm-hmm. um because that was something that i felt like people could do more with you know when when stacking samples is like hey try to like have the guitar be in tune and the bass be in tune and that was something that i really admired about producers like dr dre mm-hmm. um you know, during the G-Funk movement, I feel like he did that better than almost anybody, is make everybody, all the samples and all the elements feel totally homogenous and totally like they all belong together. Um, so I happened to drop the needle on the Colonel Badshot record and um, one of my speakers, unbeknownst to me, wasn't plugged in. In in that era in the late 60s, lots of times people would experiment with having like all the vocals panned to one side and all the music pan to another. So all I was hearing come out, coming out of my speaker was the vocal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could tell, even though it wasn't right in tune when I dropped the needle on the record, I was like, hold up, hold up. And got the vocal in tune, played it over my loop. And that's when I was kind of like, you know, it was, it was one of those eureka moments for sure. Right. That I went, okay, this is incredible because on introducing a lot of the narrative that I would hear from people is this is revolutionary because it's instrumental only. And my whole thing was like, it's not instrumental by design. I just didn't know who I wanted to rap on this stuff, or I didn't know who I wanted to sing on this stuff. Um, And I really didn't want to just go get people. Um, I wanted to, I don't know, figure some, something else out and be in total control. Because anytime you collaborate, of course, you're going to end up um, compromising. And that's fine. And that's great. But in this case, with these solo albums I was doing, I wanted to be in total control. So this was basically a way for me to have vocals without having to cater to egos or ask people to do another take or, you know, can you put this kind of energy into it and that's exhausting as a producer and it's um it's its own thing and it's something that i take a lot of uh i don't know i take seriously when i do it of course but at that time i was trying to just be in total control and it was a way for me to do that excellent um since we're jumping around a little bit i i wonder if we can talk a little bit about this time uh, from the outsider it's a such a beautiful song it's a song i've really connected with and it, it couldn't be further away from some of the hyphy stuff on that track and i don't want to delve back into that aspect of the project which you already answered so masterfully but i guess what i want to know is um do you consider that to be the first time you made a soul song like it, you've sampled so many different kinds of genres but you made something that's so human and organic feeling and you don't i don't necessarily need you to tell the whole story about finding the real and stuff. I feel like that's been covered elsewhere, but can you talk a little bit about um, making something from samples that's perhaps not recognizable as hip hop per se and how, where that got you in your career or how you think about it now? In the beginning I didn't know 
Yeah, I mean, well, you you touched on monosyllabic, which was definitely a a me kind of sitting there going, what hasn't been done with samples? Okay, let me try that. This was almost a reverse engineer thing where I had an acapella vocal that didn't really have, you know, a track built around it. Um, and I saw it as kind of a rare opportunity for me to make something which I really hadn't done up to that point, which was, let me see if I can make my own, like, 45 sounding kind of funk track mm -hmm. like it could have come out back in the day or whatever um and malcolm cotto from the heliocentrics he's somebody that i first connected with in the mid 90s when funk 45s were was really really underground and there were only a handful of people that i could find anywhere that that were really uh honed in on it and he was one and and then later I found out what an incredible drummer he was. So um, I talked to him about the concept and, and I was in the UK uh, to work with him and his group. And that was, uh, it was just like, okay, this is going to be interesting. Let's see if we can do this. And what was great is that Max from the Poets of Rhythm, the Poets of Rhythm was really the first uh, revivalist funk group that, that I feel like was credible. and. I've always been a fan of their stuff above and beyond everybody else because I really feel like they got the music way more than everybody else. It wasn't about aesthetics. It wasn't about matching suits and all that stuff that you saw every other funk band and funk combo do later. Mm -hmm. um, they were constantly one step ahead of that kind of crowd. And Max Weisenfeld really took the, took the whole concept on board and did a lot of the uh, musical arrangements um, to, to, to put over the top. And then I had my friend, Will Malone, who did the strings on the uncle record, um, do the strings on that. So really it was just a, a patchwork of trying to find people who understood the concept. And then over the course of like a year and a half, okay, let's add this, um, let's add that. Um, I wanted it to have a certain swing it took a long time. I mean, it seems seems like a simple concept, but I remember editing the drums and ed editing the bass line. And man, it took, I, I wanted it to be tight. I didn't want it to be, you know, kind of stuff flamming and loose. I wanted it to be pretty tight. And so it took a long time to piece together. Yeah, that's cool to hear. It's a, it's a beautiful song. And I think among your best, if you don't mind me saying, it's uh, um, really successful. And I'm, I appreciate you describing the hard work that went into it. Thanks. So you mentioned a little bit earlier about music finding you. Uh, what's finding your ear these days? Like what are, what are some of the things that you're, you're checking for? Um, yeah. I mean, through the years, it's, it's, and I've kind of, you know, gone on record with this concept before, but it's, it's, it's that public enemy moment. Um, when I heard Rebel Without a Pause, to me, it, it was foundational and it was, um, I don't know, it was like some kid, when you talk about kids hearing like, you know, Hendrix for the first time or the Sex Pistols for the first time or whatever, it, it, that, that, was my, that was my moment, you know what I mean? At age, whatever I was at the time, 14 or 15, hearing it. Um, and I'm always trying to find something that gives me that same energy. And... Mm. Over the years, I've found it 
in everything from drum and bass to UK dubstep to, um, I mean, more recently producers like Clams Casino. Um, mm. And so that's, it, it's, it's that, you know what I mean? It's always, mm. okay, who's doing something that A, I can't do, B, I don't know how to do, C, I really want to know how to do, you know what I mean? And, and sometimes you hear music that just really, um, I don't know, kind of rocks you to your core, especially as somebody who takes pride in being able to know their way around a studio and know their, their way around production. Once in a while you hear production that's so advanced or so elevated or, you know, the sound design is so crazy or whatever. Um, and you just kind of go, okay, wait, I need to, I need to know all about what this is. Mm. And um, so, I mean, I, the last album I did, I feel like touched on a lot of that. Um, certain songs, like I did a song called um, Juggernaut that is like, okay, this is the sound design track on the record. You know what I mean? Like mm. taking, to running a simple sample through a bunch of different little modules to and taking those sounds and, and walking them over to my friend's house who lives in Mill Valley, who has a, you know, a really rare synth and running it through that circuitry and sampling that. And just taking, you know, to me, it's definitely not about just sticking a loop in a, in Ableton or in Pro Tools or any other DAW and, and just leaving it at that. It's about removing it one step, two steps, three steps, four steps to the point where all the sounds in the song are not only unidentifiable, but it no longer matters where they come from. You know what I mean? It's, it's like new sound mm -hmm. and uh, it's that elbow grease and that work. And that's what I always admire, whether it's, three feet high and rising or um, straight out of Compton or, or like, you know, like I said, more recent producers, it's that work. It's that the idea that it's either deceptively simple and I, I, I would have totally complicated it unnecessarily, or it's so advanced that it, it challenges me. And, and I think whether you're a woodworker or, um, a painter or a dancer or whatever you do that's artistic you need to be inspired and you need to see that other people are pushing the boundaries and raising the bar otherwise you just kind of stagnate mm -hmm. you know um josh you mentioned uh, your studio earlier and um one of the things i remember most when we were conducting the uh, wax poetics interview was um you mentioned that uh, you're not the type of producer that can make 10 hot beats in a day and that, you know, the smallest snippet of music, you know, takes weeks and months for you. Um, I guess, you know, given that and given your, you know, collective history, where do you think you fit into music these days? Uh, it's funny, you're wearing a Neil Young shirt, right? And, <laughs> yeah. And to me, Neil Young is an example of an artist that transcends genre to the point where you just say, it's Neil Young. Mm -hmm. um, and those are the kind of artists that I think ultimately I look up to the most because, um, you know, David Lynch, what kind of movie is it? Well, it doesn't matter. It's a David Lynch movie. Right. And that's, those are the career arcs and the individuals that um, I aspire to be like, because 
when it's all written and it's all said and done and you know it could be tomorrow or it could be 25 years from now whenever it is that you know the book is closed on my work um that's to, to me would be the ultimate compliment is there's a universe there to be explored whether it's the soul side stuff or the brain freeze stuff with cut chemist or like the the liquid amber stuff that I do or, or my mass appeal era or my Moax era or my this era or that, um, or the radio shows I've done or the mixes or, you know, whatever it is that I've been a part of and, and all the different things that I've done. That's what I love about people, for example, like James Brown. Mm -hmm. Remember when you would find out like, what is it? Oh, wait, he's got his own label. Okay. Tight. Oh, and then he produced, wait, he did what? He did that like a psychedelic album and, and all this stuff. And it's like this universe to be explored. And right. that that's what my favorite artists have provided for me is as you go along through life, you get different nutrition from different components of what they've done. And um, so, I mean, as far as where I fit in, I don't think I do fit in because um, I, I don't know, but but it's it's always been something that like okay that's that's cool. I don't I, I I don't really care if I fit in. I don't care who thinks I'm this or who thinks I'm that. It's it's a uh, you know you're always going to be tested as a as a producer as a, a you know I, I can definitely remember after introducing Blue Up. It's like who is this kid? You know what I mean? And and I understand all that because I would feel the same kind of way about certain other alt hip hop groups that had come out prior. And I just be, I could take one look and be like, nah, they're, that's full of shit. And the reason it was full of shit is because they were rock kids coming at hip hop um, or they were this type of kid coming at hip hop. For me, it was always backwards. I was a hip hop kid coming at rock or coming at this or coming at that hip hop was always my foundation and having been inspired and, and guided by people like Grandmaster Flash and Bambata and, and, and Prince Paul and others who basically were like, hip hop is whatever you decide it is. As long as you view things through a hip hop lens and, you know, whether it's you're listening to Sun Ra or, or funk or soul or rock or whatever, a lot of the people that I think have been the most inspiring to me are people who, again, transcended genre, whether it's George Clinton or, or, you know, when you think about funk and you think about people like George Clinton, Sly Stone, Prince, James Brown, they were all people that were so, so dope that, that funk was whatever they said it was. Mm -hmm. and 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 that's those are the people within hip-hop that always inspired me whether it was flash again bambata prince paul saying no this children's record is dope because i say it's dope really appreciate you joining us here on the dad bod rap pod we're obviously huge fans of your work and um yeah you, you went really in depth and we appreciate it man thanks so much for coming on the program appreciate it guys thank thanks, you thanks man all right peace. take care Talk Stay cool. peace
Dad Bod Rap Pod. That was our interview with DJ Shadow. You know, like we said at the top, just a, a really cool, humble cat. Went super in depth. Great to hear his stories about UC Davis college radio and Paris and right. all of these things. His origin story is uh, incredible and not something that a lot of folks know about. So we're fortunate to have him um, share that with us. Since the pandemic hit, we have had to move our show onto Zoom, um, which has been interesting and I think for the most part beneficial. Sure. Um, but it's interesting because we're an audio show, right? And it was interesting because not everybody likes to be on camera. It's, right? and you could probably guess some of the folks who have chosen not to uh, join the video. Billy Woods, for instance, <laughs> face is a collection of pixels. Uh, did, chose not to not to start the video when he was on. Um, I, I was a little surprised, but not totally surprised because of his kind of reclusive um, reputation that. Josh, as I will call him, because we're friends now, um, <laughs> would, uh, wouldn't want to join the video. And like when he when he jumped on, like he was early, and Dave hadn't even joined yet, and Dave is the one who knows him. So I was just trying to chit chat to keep things light. And I'm like, "Hey, man, how you doing?" And he's like, "Oh, are we starting the interview now?" And I'm like, "No, <laughs> I'm a person asking you how you're doing." That's hilarious. And he, then he, he like did. He's like, "No video, right?" Like I don't have to. Be <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I was like, "No, man! Like, however you're comfortable. Like, you don't have to do the video. It's totally fine. Like, if it's it's, we'll just talk. Like, it's no worries." And then I felt like, it, in in kind of like a sign of respect, like it was going well. The interview was going good, and he's like, "All right, like you you guys are cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn on my video." And he had all the lights off in his studio, so he turns on the video, and all we can see is like the point of his chin, <laughs> literally in shadows. Because it was like 107 in Mill Valley when we recorded this, and it was like an insane heat wave. So I'm just, there are little moments like um, when we interviewed Easy Moby and he answered the phone saying he was just getting out of the shower. Classic. <laughs> Weird little Classic. things that have occurred over the past couple of years where I'm like talking to people I, I couldn't respect more. Like my, totally, my musical totally. heroes who are like, we're, we're seeing little glimpses into their lives. And so I just thought that was hilarious and apropos given. Yeah, of, of DJ Shadow, on brand for him, I know. Uh, uh, doing the big reveal and then we still couldn't <laughs> see him. Uh, yeah, it's just, this episode has been kind of uh, what you can expect from the dad bod uh, rap pod. And so we want to thank DJ Shadow for coming on and talking to us. And Dave, we're on a producer roll. Your Rolodex is rolling. Yes, sir. Okay. Who we got coming on next week? We have something that I would say it's kind of automatic um, moving from this episode. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he's somebody that uh, we should give him his flowers now, perhaps his blue flowers. Um, <laughs> Dave's doing like a great 808 style I know, intro. I know, totally. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, we, were, we had the big fortune to talk to BJ Shadow, who has a big Soul Sides Bay Area connection as does this next guy who is the one and only dan the automator so looking come back to next week well. if you yes, like sir. if you like uh independent hip-hop super producer interviews you are not gonna exactly. find a better exactly. collection we uh, were very fortunate to do that and you know basically we our, our thing is to do informed evergreen interviews uh we don't take ourselves seriously but we take the music very seriously and That's to right. have cats like shadow and automator you know, uh, share some time with us and nerd the fuck out. 
I mean, it, it, it's always an honor. And uh, every Thursday, every Thursday, we got another one of those lined up. So we got some good stuff lined up. I mean, I can't really divulge much information right now, but mm -hmm. um, thank you for peeping the shadow interview. We got Automator next and a couple Damn. huge other ones next as well. Nice. Damn. It's dope because, like, I don't even know what Davis sees it right now. <laughs> I don't know who we're going to be talking to. That's one of the best parts of this podcast is we just have, like, a group chat. And then Dave will be, like, talking to Razzcast at 6 o'clock. I'm like, yo, what, like, where did it come from? Um, I'm going to so, go put my soul on ice. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Read a history book real quick. There it is. Yeah. Um, so, like Dave said, next Thursday – we have our interview with Dan the Automator dropping. We drop new episodes every Thursday, 12 p.m. PST. Um, and you can check us out on really most of the places that you interact with your fake radio content. That would be Google Play, Apple, uh, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Uh, and one day we will challenge Joe Rogan's YouTube uh, homogeny. But um, yeah, that's, it's the Dabod Rap Pod. You can listen to the podcast on all those platforms, but you can also interact with us on Twitter at DadBodRatPod, where we had a very um, interesting discussion this week because Nate LeBlanc, um, super pundit that he is, was <laughs> mentioned in a new uh, Complex article uh, by Sean Sotero. Real quick, Nate, why don't you kind of tell him a little bit about the article and, and what you put your two cents on it and how Twitter reacted. Sure. Uh, thanks, man. Um, just, yeah, so there was an article on Complex last week. Um, it was called Why You Should Be Paying Attention to Art Rap Right Now. And um, I was lucky enough to be interviewed um, by Sean Sotero, who's someone I really respect. Like his podcast, The Cypher, is a huge inspiration to us and a reason that we mm -hmm. do this. And we've had him on a couple of times, and I, I consider him a friend at this point. He's a great guy, great journalist. And, um, yeah, we just we wanted to talk about the little movement that's happening with um, artists such as Billy Woods, Elucid, Rap Ferreira, Quelle Chris. Um, I, I realize now we haven't actually interviewed every single person that was mentioned because you mentioned Earl Sweatshirt. So right, uh, <laughs> Ebe, if you're listening, love to talk to you. Uh, that's the final. That's the final boss of art rap. Like when you get to the, the art rap hierarchy. So yeah, I just you know I got to I. This is so funny. Like I, I'm the you know a very small time journalist myself. I'll write an article a year or so, um, and they have to like literally drag it out of me at times. So I'm really used to being on the other side of the pen. So I, I did like a 45 minute phone call with Sean and I was wandering in my neighborhood and I'm like screaming into the phone because I'm so excited to talk about all this stuff. And then the article comes out and it's like one sentence and it's like, it's tight. I love it. It was power packed. It's just, yeah. it's just like seeing all the, how the sausage was ground up on that was like super fascinating. Um, so it's just music that I love and I was lucky enough to be able to talk to it. And like, I'm not going to lie, like I'm fucking stoked to be quoted in a big magazine like that. Sure. Like, I had a very tough week that week and there was like this like really cool bright spot where it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, dude, people are listening to what I have to say. This is very exciting. But on the flip side, there were some folks, um, especially like kind of like compatriots of ours who took issue with the term art rap, which I didn't yes. use in the piece yeah. and were yeah. kind of adding me going like, oh, art rap, that's like some colonizer shit that like complex Mark Echo himself came right. down and like fucking editorialized on what Billy Woods does. And I'm like, can I enjoy this for like two minutes? 
totally. No, and I just That's enjoy not how my, Twitter works, bro. my fucking like little moment here where I'm in this really cool article talking about this amazing music with some right. that I've interviewed and invested time in to understand. And I'm trying to help like shine a light on. So it was just really funny. I don't personally take issue with the term art rap. I don't think you guys do either. Like, I think we no. understand where it comes from and like, yeah. we're not, we're not out here coining phrases the actually the yeah. phrase that we use to describe that music is called the vanguard and sean kind of yes. snuck it in um, mm-hmm. in one it, of the sentences yeah, right. we, we did right. we, we're not out here trying to name something that has nothing to do with us we just like the music we think it's important so it was a cool moment but it was kind of funny like seeing some of the response but so Absolutely, it goes man that's that's twitter for you but we're here for all of it you can interact with us on twitter and rail against nate's renaming of the culture <laughs> at dad bod rap pod <laughs> on Twitter. We are also on IG at Dad Bod Rap Pod where you can see um, noted influencer David Ma. Uh, no. We, can, we do an IG live uh, stream every um, every Friday, Friday at 5. At, every Friday live at 5 p.m. PST. Um, some incarnation, they did, you can't do three people on an IG right. live stream. So right. it's, some, it's some kind of cobbling of, of two of us or one of us and, and a friend of the program kind of just talking about the weekend rap as well as the most recent episode that's come out. And Nate typically will drop, uh, Nate will typically drop as I drop. Yeah. Yeah. Nate will typically drop, uh, some gems and, uh, untold stories that we can't share on the pod, but because of the, um, self-destruction, self-destructive nature of IG live, we can talk a little bit more shit. So we beckon you to join us, um, in those places. Uh, Nate, are we still taking producer submissions? Absolutely. So um, if those of you who are new to this because of the Stony Island connection, and I want to take a moment to shout out Blueprint and Elogic um, of Super Duty Tough Work. I've been listening to their Absolutely. music for a long time, and they're, uh, there's not that many shows on the network at this point, so I wanted to make right. a point to like, give, a, give a big shout to our new teammates, um, Blueprint and Elogic, who I have a lot of respect for, and I think they do Absolutely. an excellent podcast. Um, they almost approach it as like kind of like a hip hop, independent hip hop like mentorship kind of vibe. Where they say, so they use they way. use their demon they use their right. um, life experiences to kind of help people make better decisions. Um, Nate, parting thoughts for this week. What can you give the people your Tony Robbins um, inspirational quote for the week? Oh, that's a tough one. It's so hot here. It's just like I don't know how to um, say anything. How about this? Um, maybe because fire season started early, it will end early. Okay. Mm. Okay. That's all I got. Okay. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to be upbeat right now. Um, Nate is just a little down because our entire state is on fire. And also it's 117 <laughs> degrees. Uh, Dave, what, what can you tell the people? What is your parting thought for the dead bod rap pod listeners this week? Oh man. Well, you know, we've been on a sort of a product, uh, production producer tangent and uh, I'm trying to keep it positive so I think what always comes to mind when I do that is to quote the great resurrector Hmm. positive energy activates constant elevation there it is guys I'll add on to that and just say peace dad by rap pod